Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you all for, for being here this morning and, and joining us for worship this, this Sunday. It is good to be back indoors. Uh, it's, it's good to, to not only celebrate our Harvest Homecoming service together, but it is good to, to be back inside our sanctuary. Uh, I could tell that it's been a while because when I, when I stepped up here this morning and went to grab the hymnal to open it up, it was stuck to the pulpit. So it had, it had been there for a little while. Uh, but it, it's good to, to be back together, uh, back here inside the sanctuary. I want to give you just a, a few announcements, point your attention to a few things uh, in your bulletin. This week we have a growth group on Tuesday. So if you're in the Tuesday group, uh, we will be meeting Tuesday at, at the Parsonage. Uh, I believe I sent, I sent an email on Friday, but if you're part of that group and did not get an email, just let me know. We'll fill you in on the details. Also, uh, Willard would like to, for me to announce that w- there will be no Young at Heart this week on Tuesday. I think the, the plan is to hopefully pick those back up back at the start of the new year uh, and just kind of see how things go so that those can resume safely. Are there any other announcements this morning that I'm missing? Good. Well, you'll see there uh, this morning, as, as you can see, is a, a special Sunday. It's our Harvest Homecoming service. Uh, in the bulletin uh, from our history committee, there's a little insert about the very first Harvest Home celebration that took place all the way back in 1919, uh, just over 100 years ago. Um, it, it says that the, it was scheduled for the second Sunday of September in honor of the returning soldiers of World War I. It was decided to have uh, an hour-and-a-half intermission after the first worship service for lunch and for the soldiers to be welcomed and honored and also have time for them to share their experiences before following up with another worship service in the afternoon. Uh, This morning, we'll just keep it to one worship service and then a lunch afterwards, if that works for everybody else. (laughs) Uh, If there's no other announcements this morning, uh, let me point your attention to Psalm 119 to read for you as as we begin our worship service. Since we've been studying the book of Deuteronomy, which is a book of God's law, Every week I've been reading a stanza out of Psalm 119, and we are closely coming to the end of this psalm after several weeks reading it. Let me read to you here. The psalmist writes, Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked. For they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Let me pray, with, pray for us as we begin our worship. Father, we are thankful this morning. Thankful for your blessings. Thankful for your provisions. Thankful for your law. Thankful for your word. God, we are thankful that we have the opportunity this morning to gather together as your people. On a Sunday that we celebrate the, the bounty, the, the provision of your hand. Father, for your goodness to us overwhelms us. Send your spirit to your people this morning. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. To make much of you 
Much of your name, much of your glory, much of your praise, much of your gospel, and less of us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's sing together this morning. Our our first hymn is hymn 81. If you will, please take your hymnals, stand, and sing with me. We gather together. of your hymnal, you'll find a copy of the Apostles' Creed. This is a creed that we say aloud together every week for several reasons, uh, but one of the main reasons is because this creed is truth. And this is what we gather around, this is what unites us, these, the truths that are found here in this creed as, as taught in God's Word. And because we are such a forgetful people, it is helpful to remind ourselves of what it is we believe. And so we do so by saying the Apostles' Creed together. So I invite you, if you believe it, to say the Apostles' Creed aloud with me this morning. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. standing let's sing one more song together 
uh, hymn 440, Savior Like a Shepherd Lead Us. Thank you. Please be seated. It's true. Blessed Jesus, thou hast loved us. Love us still. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. If you don't have one, I'm sure there's one on your phone or maybe even a blue one on the end of your pew. Feel free to grab whichever you prefer. Uh, and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 12. If you're visiting with us this morning, let me tell you first, thank you for coming. Uh, it's good to have you with us. We have been spending the last several weeks and months working our way through this book of Deuteronomy. Uh, and here we are in the, the 12th and 13th chapter this morning. Uh, but as a visitor, I am glad you're here. I'm glad that you've, you're joining with us this morning. And it's, it's good to, to gather together and study God's word this morning. 
This morning I want to read to you from Deuteronomy 12 and then, and then teach from this, from this passage and teach what God's Word says about idolatry. This morning we are looking at the at beginning in chapter 12, verse 29, and then looking all the way to the end of chapter 13, which I'll read to you here this morning. Hear the Word of the Lord. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess and You dispossess them and dwell in their land. Take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods, that I may also do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery. To make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If your brother, the the son of your mother, or your son or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul, entices you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, Some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones, because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known. Then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. Behold, if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction, all who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. You shall gather all its spoil into the midst of the open square and burn the city and all its spoil with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. None of the devoted things shall stick to your hand, that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you. 
and multiply you as he swore to your fathers. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all his commandments that I am commanding you today, and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Let's seek God's help as we come to his word this morning. Father, our prayer is that you would speak to us through your word. We know your word is truth. We know that it stands forever. So help us to submit our lives to it. Help us to understand how this word impacts our lives today. That we may honor you, that we may praise you, that we may glorify you in our worship, in our living, in our obedience. And Father, when we when we disobey, where we have fled your laws, where we have turned away from your word, forgive us. Forgive us in the blood of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. In the animated children's classic movie, Jungle Book, the, the man cub, Mowgli, is spending his entire, the, the entire movie, he struggles with the idea that he must leave the jungle, the only home that he's ever known. And so along the way, he interacts with all sorts of, of jungle animals and creatures who serenade him with their songs, many of which, in a very real way, depict their very lives. So, for example, Baloo, the bear, is just as happy with the simple bear necessities. He doesn't need anything else. But the King Louis, the orangutan, needs everything. He, in his, in his own right, is a king, but still not satisfied and wants to be like mankind. But there's one character, one song that is more dangerous than that of Baloo or King Louis. It's the snake, Ka. You see, in the scene where where Mowgli meets Ka, the snake begins to sing this hypnotic lullaby that's called Trust in Me. The, The words to the song begin with, Trust in me, just in me. Shut your eyes, trust in me. You can sleep safe and sound knowing I am around. It seems harmless enough of a song. It's, it seems a, a, a calming picture of, a, of a, a friend trusting a friend. But what is happening as the snake is singing the song, as Mowgli is, is being lulled into this trance, hypnotic, sleep-like state, is this constrictor is slowly wrapping itself around the young man cub. And the song continues. Sleep into a silent slumber. Sail on a silver mist. Slowly and surely, your senses will cease to resist. What a great children's movie. I mean, it's a a frightening thought, isn't it? This snake slowly singing and lulling its prey into a a, a trance while it just wraps itself around, squeezing tighter and tighter I think any of us would shiver at the idea that something in our own lives could be wrapping itself around us, slowly killing us, 
lulling us to sleep completely unaware of what's happening just because of the sound of its sweet, tender voice. Well, the reality is, is that this is happening. This is happening around you every day of your life. There are constant voices singing you to sleep, lulling you like Ka into this song of trust in me. Stop resisting. Go to sleep. All the while it is wrapping itself around you. No, I'm not talking about a jungle python, but it is idolatry that is wrapping itself around you in every which way. There are a thousand different voices calling out, leading you into this, into this deadly trap. And as we come to Deuteronomy 12 and 13, the, the point of this passage is really quite simple. If there is a voice leading you towards idolatry, no matter how sweet the voice is, no matter whose voice it is, we must not listen to it. We must not listen. And so this morning, as we spend our time in this passage, I I encourage you, keep your Bibles open so that you can follow along with me, so that you can see what I'm saying is, is from Scripture and not from myself. Because what I want to do this morning is, is walk through the, the, the end of chapter 12 first and sort of teach what is really idolatry. And then in chapter 13, understand the seduction of idolatry, looking at the three voices that speak it to us. So first, here's the, the gist of the passage. The command is no idol worship. We see that at the very end of chapter 12 in verses 29 through 32. It's the the main command of the passage. And it revolves around the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And so for Israel, other gods took the form of idols, little statues that they worshipped. And and for many of us, that's typically what we think of when we think idolatry. And as long as we're not worshipping idols, as long as we're not bowing down to statues, we're good. But really, this, this... image of idolatry in our minds only scratches the surface. What really is idolatry? You see, like all sins, idolatry begins not with an outward deed, but in the heart. John Piper said that idolatry is craving, wanting, enjoying, or being satisfied by anything that you treasure more than God. He goes on and he says that it is loving more than God what ought to be loved less than God and only for the sake of God. Or to put it simply, idolatry is loving something too much what ought to be loved less. Let me take it a step further than that and show you that idolatry is, idolatry is need-driven. Idolatry is need-driven. I mean, you and I, have we have various needs in our lives. We, we need to be loved and comforted and affirmed and secured and powerful. We, we have needs that we want to feel and, and have met. And idolatry happens when we seek to meet those needs in anything or anyone that is not God. And the idol then, if this is idolatry, the idol then is that someone or something that we are coming to to meet our needs. And so for Israel and the ancient Near East, this was, this was the idols, this was the statues. 
But they didn't just worship Baal because they got bored with worshiping Yahweh. They worshiped Baal because Baal was the god of fertility. Baal promised, he he offered fertile, fertile soil for the crops, fertile wombs for women, virility for men. And through, through worshiping Baal, they were offered, their need for, for fertility was being met, in theory. See, the problem in all idolatry, whether it's Baal or whether it's anything else, the problem is that these needs, the need for fertility, the need for comfort, the need for power, the need for love, all of these needs that we have can only truly be met in the Lord and no one else. So for us, the question has to be asked, where does your idolatry lie? It's not a question of if you're an idolater, but where and when and how. I mean, do we not have the same needs as Israel? We want to be fertile. We want power. We want security. We want affirmation. We want comfort. And to find the root of our idolatry, we only need to search for ways in which we seek to meet these needs. Let me give you an example. The need for comfort. Let's say you've had a long day at work. The kids are driving you up the wall and you're now on the verge of going over the wall. You've had a fight with your spouse. The relationship breaks. You're grieving the loss of a loved one. You're tired. You're hurt. You're sick. You're frustrated and desperate in in need to feel better. You need comfort. So where do you turn? What do you do to feel comforted? What do you do to feel better? And the possibilities are endless. There is sex, there's drink, there's TV, there's entertainment, there's alone time, there's work, there's relationships, there's shopping, there's sleep, there's food. I mean, why do you think they call it comfort food? I mean, the list goes on and on and on. There's all sorts of things we turn to for comfort. And none of these things are really evil in and of themselves, but they become idols when we seek what we desire in them instead of the true and living God, the true God of true comfort. You see, this is the way a broken world worships. Idols that offer to meet any and every need that only God can meet. And understanding this, then we can understand and and really feel the impetus of verse 30. The, the, The warning that is given to Israel. Take care that you be not ensnared to follow them. That you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve them, that I may also do the same? No, you shall not worship the Lord your God that way. You see, we fail to obey this command when we... Look at how the world worships, how the world meets their needs, and then we seek to do likewise. We say, well, it works so well for them. Surely it will work for me. And you see, avoiding idolatry would be much, much easier if there weren't so many people clamoring for it. If there weren't so many voices surrounding us, seducing us into this deadly trap. God does not leave us ignorant of these voices. He does not leave us unaware to figure it out on our own. And Deuteronomy 13 is a warning regarding three of these seductive voices. Look at these three voices so that really we will be ready to resist them when we hear them. 
So, so voice number one, the religious leader. The religious leader. We see this in verses four, 1 through 5 of chapter 13. You see, throughout the Old Testament, Israel had a plethora of prophets, of men and sometimes women who stood before Israel and says, Listen, guys, God spoke to me, and I'm here to tell you what he said. And often, as accompanied by this teaching supposedly from the Lord, would come some sort of sign or evidence or fortune-telling that would thereby prove that what they had to say was truly from God. And so because of this very common feature, Israel had a very simple rule. If someone comes to you and says, God told me this, and that thing that they told you doesn't actually happen, then you know without a doubt that person did not come from the Lord. If it does come to pass, if it happens, then then you should trust that prophet. You should trust that person who's saying God said this because it came true. But in this scenario, something different happens. In this one, we have a, a prophet or a dreamer of dreams comes to Israel and says, God spoke to me and he told me this was going to happen. And he gives a sign or a wonder and the sign or wonder comes to pass. So Israel would already be thinking, OK, there's there's truth here. This, this has to be from the Lord because what he said has happened. But then the prophet continues. And he says, let's go serve other gods, which you have not known. Let us, let us serve them and, and go after them. And Deuteronomy very clearly says, you shall not listen to the words of that person. Ignore them. You see, we, we are quick to believe signs. We see what we believe to be evidence that God is at work through a person, and we will believe anything that that person says. But religious leaders, whether it's your pastor, whether it's a theologian, whether it's a person on TV, it does not matter. Religious leaders must not be believed on the basis of a sign. Because our eyes deceive us. And this is the problem with so many prosperity teachers today. Because this is what happens. They'll stand up on a stage, surrounded by thousands and millions more watching on TV or whatever, and they'll stand up and they'll tell this story. And the story will inevitably go something like this. I know of a woman who had pennies left in her bank account. Bill collectors were on the way to her house. Repo team was getting ready to take her car. The bank was about to take her home. She had nothing and no way out. And so she prayed to God and she asked what to do. And God told her, give your, what's left of your money to my organization and to my ministry or to my church or whatever it is. And you know what happened? The creditors lost the address and couldn't find her house. The bank messed up their, their system and ended up just paying off her mortgage. And not only that, they realized they had made an error and credited tens of thousands of dollars right into her bank account. And the story will inevitably lead with some sort of application of, if you do the same, God will do this for you. It is a crock. And they've got story after story after story, a person after person after person. Because if it's not finances, then it's healing miracles. And if it's not healing miracles, then it's children and family and husbands and wives. It's, it's any blessing that you could possibly want. All you have to do is just follow me. And they use this sign to prove that God is with them. 
And then they lead millions away after idols. It is a cruel seduction that these prosperity teachers alone profit from at the very literal expense of so many. I read this passage, my, my question goes, why would God allow this sign or wonder to come true? If it was so clear that all God had to do was just cut the legs out from under the prophet and make what he said not happen, why would God allow it to happen and lead so many? And we see in verse 3 the answer to that, that this whole thing is it's a test from the Lord. The Lord is testing you to see whether or not you lo- truly love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul. And it's a very simple question. It's a very simple test with one simple question. Will you believe the signs that your eyes see or will you believe the words that your ears hear? Because that's the truth. You want to know the difference? How do you tell the difference between a true teacher and a false teacher of God? You judge with your ears and not your eyes. What do you hear, not what you see? Because here's the the reality of it. If I were to lead you outside into our cemetery this morning and reach into a grave and bring the, uh, the dead back to life, something that only God can do, and if this were to happen and the dead were to walk out of the grave that they are buried in, and then I were to come back in here and tell you, let us go and serve other idols, or I would teach anything that went against God's word, you shouldn't believe me for a second longer. Because the sign means nothing if the words are false. Use your ears, not your eyes. What do you hear being said? Does it line up with what is being said in God's word or is it contrary? What is the, the penalty for a religious leader like this? What should happen to this seductive voice of idolatry? In verse 5, it says, that prophet or dreamer shall be put to death. Why? Because he has taught rebellion against the Lord. It's actually quite simple. The religious leader has committed treason against the king. And not only that, he has, started to, he has tried to start sedition to lead others away from this king. Which would be better? To allow the nation to listen to this voice and to come under the king's wrath? Or to silence that voice altogether? Should the nation perish along with this evil man? Or should one man die to save the rest? This is what Jesus did, is it not? One man dying in the place of others to save the rest. One man dying under the wrath of God to save all who would believe. And the only difference between Jesus and this religious leader is the religious leader deserves it. Jesus did not. We did. And because Jesus takes the wrath in our place, the righteous dying for the unrighteous, we have been then set free from the judgment, from the wrath of God. Verse 5 ends with this command for Israel. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. This is the same command that Paul gives in the New Testament to the Corinthian church. As they deal with sin within their church. Now we are no longer commanded to kill. That's not what God commands for the church. It's not what he intends for for his people today. But silencing this voice is still necessary. 
When Paul quotes this verse in in Corinthians, what he is doing is he is advocating for the church to exercise discipline and remove the religious leader who leads the church astray. Because what's better? To remove the one that's leading everyone astray or to allow the whole church to be lost? Ultimately, we, we see in this first voice that the punishment for the idolater is quite clearly death. Voice number two, the family member. The family member. And we see this in verses 6 through 11. Verse 6 gives us a list. These are the closest human relationships that you will ever have. It is a sibling that you grew up with. Who's been by your side, the whole, uh, sorry, the, your child that you watched grow up. Uh, a spouse who's been by your side for decades. Or a friend who is so close to you that Deuteronomy says it's like the two of you share a soul. Saying what the other one's thinking. Laughing at inside jokes together. Communicating across the room without ever speaking a word. I'm sure that everyone here could probably think of at least one person that could fit on this list. And as great a blessing as these people are in our lives, as great, as, as enriching as this, these relationships are, they also bring a great danger when it comes to their voice in our lives. Because, you see, religious leaders are one thing. We can be on guard. We can be prepared, ready to make a defense against the, the wildest assaults against God's word from some outsider. We're ready to defend that. But family members and close friends operate behind the walls of our defense. They operate behind our guards, within our walls, and their voice can be all the more seductive and therefore all the more destructive. Notice the difference between the religious leader and the family member. See, the religious leader does it publicly, and he has an audience. He, he gives a sign. The family member entices you secretly. Behind closed doors when you least expect it. And, and I don't mean that every close friend and family member desires to harm you. But whether they intend to or not, they will and can easily lead you into idolatry. Consider, consider the example from earlier, this, this need for comfort. So you've had the long day, you, one frustration after another, argument with parents, whatever the case may be. You are tired and you come to your best friend for for advice, for guidance, for counsel. Help me. What do I do? And typically, they will respond something along these lines. Well, what you need is to blow off some steam. Well, what you need is to just get away for a few days. You need to sleep with someone. You need to get drunk. You need, to, you need a vacation. You need a day where you do nothing. You need some other random form of temporary distraction to just get your mind off of things for a little while. See, the problem with this mindset is not that vacations are bad. But the problem with this mindset is that your friend or family member is telling you, in the words of Deuteronomy, what you need is to go and serve other gods. This stuff will give you just what you need to feel better. It will provide true comfort. Just go and serve them. As a side note, If you're the family member or the close friend that someone is coming to 
and you're the one tasked with giving them advice and helping them to feel better, just point them to Jesus. Where else could you possibly point someone in need of comfort? He is the only one who can satisfy that need. He is the only one who can comfort. The only one who meets needs as they need to be met. Why would you send them anywhere else? And while the penalty for this family member in Deuteronomy 13 is is not that different from the religious leader, you can feel in the passage how much greater the pain is. Because of the closeness of the relationship with the person involved, there is a much greater hurt that comes with this. Moses even addresses what we might be tempted to do. You look at verse 8 and following, he says, first, don't yield to them or listen to them. You see, because of the closeness of the relationship you have with this person, you will be tempted not even to question what they say and just accept it because they would only want what's best for me. Moses says, don't listen. And then he says, don't pity them, spare them, or hide them. Because once you realize the severity of what's happened, because we love them, we might try to protect them. Do you have any idea what you said? You, you can't say stuff like that. Look, I won't tell anybody you said it. And in Israel, this would have been a very very trying time or very hard thing to do because they know what the, what the law requires. We want to hide them from justice and protect them from justice when in fact God says you must pursue justice even when it hurts. And third, Moses says you must kill him. Just like the religious leader, this close family member, this friend, has tried to lead you away from the Lord. But what's different here is that you, as the one who he has come to, as the one who has reported this crime, as the one closest to this person, you must be the one to cast the first stone. And this was done, as he says in verse 11, so that all of Israel would hear of what happened And they would fear and never again do any such wickedness. See, the severity of the judgment reveals the severity of the crime. And no, I don't believe that this punishment applies in the same way for the church today. I am not telling you that you should stone your best friend when he tells you you need a vacation. I don't think that's what Deuteronomy is telling you either. But you do need to understand that faithfulness to the Lord will always be more important than faithfulness to family. Always. And the conflicts that arise within these closest relationships are often the most painful and costly that believers have to face. But as in all things, Jesus too knows what you experience because he has faced this. He endured this tension and temptation He faced pressure from his own close family and from a closest friend to deflect him from his path of obedience to the Lord. He warned his disciples that they too would face such opposition. And he even presented the rival claims of family and God in the strongest of verbs. For he told his disciples, whoever does not hate his brother or sister or hate his father and mother is not worthy of the kingdom of God. 
Jesus was and he is, he's not anti-family. Neither is Deuteronomy. But both Jesus and this law of God understand that there exists within the family circle one of the toughest and most subtle forms of idolatry. A voice that operates behind the walls and can tear down the castle with just a whisper. Loved ones, be careful to who you listen to. Even those closest to you can seduce you into idolatry. And you might find that you might lose those closest to you because of this. But trust me, Jesus is worth it. Again, the punishment for the idolater is death. Voice number three, the voice of the people. We see this in the last part of the chapter, verses 12 through 18. The final scenario given is the most difficult to hear, I I believe. Because you see, the first two voices are individuals. And we punish them in judgment, the, the individual who seeks to turn others away from the Lord. It's one person that we deal with. But what happens if that one person succeeds in leading others? What happens if they succeed not just in leading a few close friends and family, but an entire city away from the Lord? What then? And in verses 12 through 18, we give a a scenario. It's laid out. A group of what they call worthless fellows have gone into a city and they led the entire city away from God and into idolatry, pursuing after other gods. And so the other cities, the rest of Israel, hears about this, and they come to the city to perform a thorough, exhaustive search for the truth. What has actually happened here? This is not a witch hunt. It is not a snap judgment. They investigate. And after this investigation, if they find out that it's true, the command is clear. The judgment is clear. The city must be destroyed completely. Everyone in it must die. Every animal must die. All possessions, all spo- the spoils of the entire city are piled up in the town square and burned as an offering to the Lord. And the city is never to be rebuilt, ever. Now, before we get too far into that punishment, we'll come back to it. Look at the voice that led down this road. And I'm not talking about the few worthless fellows. Because they could have been dealt with like the religious leader and like the family member. They weren't. But the seductive voice at work here is the voice of the people, or what we might call today popular opinion. How quickly and how deadly is the voice of popular opinion? You might remember your parents teaching you as a young child, if all your friends jumped off a bridge, would you go do it too? Deuteronomy 13 asked, if your entire city pursues idols, would you pursue them too? You see, when it comes to popular opinion, we are easily seduced. Because we see what works for them, and we see so many people doing it this way, that it must work this way. I mean, look at how many people get married and find happiness, right? So that's what I need. I just need to get married, and then I'll be, I'll be truly happy. Look at how many people have successful careers and are able to have the good life that I want. I just need a new job. I need a better job, and then I'll be finally truly happy. Look at how secure and powerful they are. Look at how comfortable they are. Look at how much fun they're having. Just look at all their Facebook pictures. 
I mean, they're never crying. They're never sad. They never have a bad day. They're never disappointed. I need that life. And listen to all these people just telling me the same thing over and over and over again. Surely this many people can't all be wrong, right? I don't pretend this is an easy thing to resist. I mean, popular opinion is a current in our society. And it feels so often that the Christian is is trying to get 100 miles upstream fighting against that current every step of the way. It's far easier to go with the current, to go with the popular opinion. But when we come to understand where that current is leading, when we see the cliffs at the end of the river, we will all the more fight to get back upstream. And the judgment for this crime, this total destruction of the city, destroyed and never rebuilt, there is an undeniable air of of permanence here. Is that because what happened within this city is that they turned when they turned from Yahweh into idols, they became this this Israelite city then became a Canaanite city, and therefore deserving of the same judgment and wrath that the Canaanite cities came under. The city must be destroyed. Because just like the religious leader and just like the family member, now for the city, the punishment for the idolater, even a city of idolaters, it's death. You see, reading through this chapter, it is, it is not an easy chapter. It is harsh and it is severe. And we might be tempted to respond in gratitude that we no longer live this way. Whew. What a primitive, barbaric society that was. Thank God we're not there. And yes, I've, I've already said we, we no longer kill idolaters. That's not God's law for his people today. But we do need to wrestle with the severity of the crime on which these judgments fall. Because we no longer curse and and pronounce judgment or wrath on idolatry. In our enlightened and evolved society compared to Israel, when we hear of idolatry, when we see the idols around us, we consider the evil and blasphemous thing that they are, we shrug. And it's not because we have some greater appreciation for human life. It's because we've lost any sense of the awful, terrifying, powerful, glorious majesty of God. We've lost it. An idol is not a big thing because God's not really a big thing. But God will not tolerate a rival. He will not accept his people leaving him in pursuit of someone else to meet a need that only he can meet. He will not put up with, hide, pity, or spare the idolater. And the kicker of that is that that means you and that means me. We deserve the death that is prescribed in Deuteronomy 13. For we are idolaters. We are constantly looking to all sorts of idols to meet our needs. We each have these our little pet idols that we love and we cherish and we protect. And his law given to us here in Deuteronomy reveals what that little harmless idol really cost you. It will cost you your life. 
And if the law reveals our sin and the death that we deserve, what hope is there for idolaters like you and me? Look at verse 17, because here we find our only hope. Our only hope is that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you. That's it. There's no other way out except for God to give mercy and to have compassion. And he does. He does. He gives mercy because the wrath has been already meted out. It's been paid. The penalty is is carried out, poured out fully on the shoulders of God's own son instead of you and me. And Because of this, the father now shows you mercy and compassion. Loved ones, do not be seduced by the voices that lead you to idolatry. Calling you to leave the God who has saved you in pursuit of idols that cannot save their own breath, let alone their followers. These voices will be loud. They will be sneaky. They will be convincing. But you must resist. Even cutting off access when necessary to silence them. And we do this not because God is, is harsh and not because we, we are, are, are closed off, ignorant people. We do this because the Lord is worth it. He is the only God, the living and the true God. He is the only one who saves, the only one who redeems. He is the only one who died for you and he lives again. Don't abandon the treasures of heaven for trash on the street. Because someone told you to. Hear his voice and come running. Call on his name and be saved. Be redeemed from the seduction of idolatry. It's not a matter of if you're an idolater, but how. It's not a matter of when the voices speak, but how are you hearing them today? God is good. He's worth it. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word, even when it's difficult, even when it's hard to read and understand. Father, we we wrestle and and struggle with the idea that you would call on your people to, to kill each other over something as simple as idolatry. God, in that in our struggling to understand that, we reveal that we struggle to understand you. We do not see you as you are. So, Father, help us to see you. Help us to know that you are God, truly, and nothing else. Father, we pray that you would teach us and help us. He would guide us in this. Father, forgive us. Help us to resist the voices that lead to idolatry. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Oh, you're good. She was just excited to sing. Well, every week as we respond to the preaching of God's word together, we take communion together. And so we have, Ron has uh, communion elements in the back. If you need one, just raise your hand. He'll bring one to you. Um, but the reason that we do this is because God's word always demands a response. 
God's word demands a response. We do not hear it and listen to it and walk away unchanged and unfazed by it. But it is for our good. And so we respond in worship and we respond by taking communion together. As we come to the table, uh, just a few instructions. If you're a believer in Christ, that you have repented of sins and trusted in Christ for salvation, that his death has atoned for your sins. Whether or not you're a member of this church, if that is true for you, if you are a believer, you are welcome at the table. Not because I have made you worthy, but because Christ has made you worthy. And he has called you and invited you with his own life to come and be at this table with him. And so we welcome you at the table. If you're not a believer and you're you're visiting here with us this morning, then then I'm glad that you're here. But what we're about to do is, is simply just eat a tasteless wafer and drink some grape juice. This won't save you. It won't. And so rather than take this, my call on you would be to take Christ. To call on him and to be saved. To be redeemed. And then join us at the table next week. Christian, as you come to the table, you come understanding what your idolatry has cost. We are not ignorant of the law requiring death for sin. Because we see in our Savior what we deserve. Death. In all of our idolatry, in all of our our listening to the voices around us, we deserve death. But Christ has taken it for us. And so we remember and we repent to never live in, live in ways that are deserving of death ever again. The debt has been paid. The body of Christ broken for you. In the bread, we look back to the death of Christ and to his resurrection, accomplishing victory over sin and death. That he died and three days later he rose again. And so we look back and we celebrate what Christ has done in the past, how it applies to us today and in the future of our lives. But in the cup, we look forward to the day when Christ our King will return. And he will bring about his kingdom and he will restore his creation where there will be no more sickness. There will certainly be no more COVID. There will be no more masks. There will be no more vaccines. There will be no more politics. Because there will be one king on the throne. And for that day we long. And for that day we wait. And for that day we cry, come quickly, King Jesus. But until then we toast and we remember and we celebrate our king. To the king. Our final hymn this morning is hymn 428. I invite you to, to take your hymnal stand and sing with us.
Well, I invite you, if you don't have lunch plans today, uh, come and join us for lunch. We're going to have a lunch after the service at the Fellowship Hall. Uh, and invite all who are hungry to come and eat with us. Uh, you don't have to bring anything. Just come and, and be a part of, of lunch and, and join us in fellowship after the meal. So I'm going to pray and pray for our time together in fellowship and bless the food that God has provided. And then we'll say our benediction together. Father, thank you for worship. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you that we can proudly say and sing, it is well with our souls. Because you have regarded our helpless estate. You have taken our sins and we bear it no more. They have been nailed to the cross. Praise the Lord. God, thank you for the food that you've provided for us. Bless our time and fellowship. Bless this and all that you've given. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you will, in in your bulletin is a copy of the Great Commission. If you will, I invite you to say it aloud with me this morning. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go in grace.